Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. My guest today, Rick Overton, walked into his audition for Beverly Hills Cop. The director, Martin Brest, just started asking him about a prophylactic. Why do I mention this? Because it's mentioned in the interview here today. And even after having conducted this interview and edited it, I still don't even know what the deal with that was. But in a wonderful way, that's the size and shape of the interview you're about to hear. This is I Was There Too. I'm Matt Gorley. It's the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. Today... It's Beverly Hills Cop and Willow. Rick played the manager in the warehouse where Eddie Murphy busts in and demands to see the customs forms for the bearer bonds that came. The point is, you remember the scene when we talk about it. And he played the tiny little brownie named Frangine alongside Kevin Pollock in Ron Howard's Willow. Plus, we discuss a long-forgotten interactive movie from the 80s that I had a couple of questions about. And Rick was happy to answer them and take us on a wonderful journey. It was a Sorry, Margo, I'm trying to record something right now. Oh, jeez. Margo, I'm trying to work here. <laughs> well, I apologize to you listeners for being interrupted by absolute cuteness. Thank you, Rick, for joining me. Thank you, listeners, for listening to me. Thank you, Margo, for being a fluff nuisance. Why don't we get started? The films, Beverly Hills Cop and Willow. The years, 1984 and 88. The roles, Bonded Warehouse Night Supervisor and Frangine the Brownie. The actor, Rick Overton. Well, Rick Overton, in Beverly Hills Cop, you play a don't rock the boat warehouse middle manager. And in Willow, you play... How would I describe this? A six-inch tall, wild Napoleon, French little Napoleon <laughs> thinks he's king of everything guy, yeah. Called a brownie. A brownie, uh-huh. Which of those two characters was the easiest for you to access as Rick Overton? 
Yeah, well, both for different reasons. I'd say the one with, uh, and they both involved uh, improv. Oh, really? Yeah, because we were winging lines back and forth on the set, and they knew that I had done improv with Eddie and stuff in the past. He's the one who recommended me for the part. Like, the good guys put their pals and stuff, you know? It's a righteous thing to do and prove that we can act. And so uh, it let us come up with, uh, give him the match, the whole thing. We didn't come up with all that was in there. But then the thing, I get, Eddie was and I were talking about lines. He says, he says when he's checking the guys upstairs, pulling the files out, scaring the shit out of everybody in the office, say, and I'm going to look up your ass with a, I'm going to check you up your ass with a microscope, one of the old iron ones from school. And so, and then I, I think in the Woody Allen guys, like, I think I can get you the files you yeah. need after that. Right. So, uh, that was improv and we kind of, they said, what do you got? You know? And so in a way it kind of formatted me to think every director is going to ask me, what do you got? They don't all ask. You just got to show up and do the thing it says on the paper. Do you ever Sometimes do it you if can they overstep don't ask? that, you know, if they don't ask, do you throw a couple in after a few takes? Or? Sometimes you watch to see if someone else did. You and then you watch <laughs> what the director does about it. And it doesn't mean because they did that you can. So in those cases, like you have Eddie Murphy, you have Val Kilmer leading the charge on these ad-libbing things, and then you just are given free reign at that point, I would Well, imagine. we're not on the same scene with Val. Right, because you guys shot that all separately. That's all post. He's, oh, he's completely we'll wrapped that. in home, and we're on a blue screen stage uh, being scared of a tennis ball <laughs> with an X of tape on it. And uh, Kevin Pollack and I and Willow held the record for the most amount of uh, blue-screened people, little people, in a film since Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which was split-screen. Well, let's start with Beverly Hills Cop. So you said that Eddie Murphy brought you in on this. What's the story there? You guys had done a lot of improv Martin together. Brest, yeah. Martin Brest was the director, and Eddie recommended me to Martin. I came into the uh, trailer and met with Martin. And what was your history with Eddie Murphy before that? Uh, I knew him when he was in Identical Triplets with Rob Bartlett and uh, uh, Rob Nelson or Jim Myers. They would switch out guys. And uh, then he uh, – Eddie broke out and got SNL. And But I knew him in the pre-SNL days. It's enough for him to know Rick Overton does characters and he's acting and he – you know, he's not just a stand-and-talk line guy. I yeah. do character things. And so knowing that, you might have a little confidence recommending someone to do a part in a film. Uh-huh. A simple – Part. Not It doesn't hold the whole film, but it does give him a chance to show what kind of railroad job he can do on someone. Yeah. <laughs> I was railroad job receiver. You, that's what I want to talk about because there's something about how you inhabit in your character this uh, this acquiescent fear, just fear-laden guy. Middleman. It's good because I did phone sales. That's what I was going to ask that. you. I had a job where there was, there's the guy that waits for the boss to laugh before he laughs. Darty, <sighs> darty eye guy. With the eyes. Who's laughing first? Oh, can I laugh? <laughs> okay. Don't commit first. Don't make boss look at you first. Yeah, that guy. It's so, so real. There's a but point. as soon as he's out of the way from the boss, he's back to yeah, King Boss walking up and down the halls, looking down in your cubicle. That's why the, you have a cubicle. So I got to stand like God that ripped the roof off your office and looks down on you. I'm taller than your wall. How do you like that, you son of a bitch? <laughs> when you come out the first moment and you you basically say, what's going on here? There is a feeling of like, who's interrupting me from watching or reading my sci-fi novel and not working right now? And then you see that there's a badge and you immediately change. I, I swear it's the quickest <laughs> character arc I've ever seen in 10 seconds from like, what's what's this I have to deal with to, oh my God. I'm yeah, really well, he job. gave him a match. Well, first of all, my first acquiescence is he hands him a match. 
my guy in the paper warehouse. Yeah, your security, has a match on Swenson, him. the security guard. Yeah, big big Swenson, blonde Swenson that has yeah. a, the a match he gives him. He shouldn't have a match. But he gives him a match. A stranger gets a match in the paper warehouse, and he scares me to death. They let us play a little bit with the rhythm of, you gave him a match. Really? Shit. You know, and then on from there. How many times would you say you guys did that first scene? Three. Three? Just three? Yeah. And was it? It was a long night. They had tons to do. Mm. And were the th- and I'm in the mirror working my douchey guy, you know, what level of douchery I will hit for this guy. How much mirror work did you do? Tons, tons of mirror douche work, yeah. <laughs> Are you teaching a class on that, buddy? Every day of my life. <laughs> Just have a gander. <laughs> Rick Overton's mirror douche workshop. <laughs> douche mirror. A douche mirror. Look into the douche mirror. I've done that in grad school. I, I did a lot of, a lot of teacher-sanctioned douche mirror workshop because those classes, too, always have a mirrored wall. Hey, are you going to the DMW today? <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> Look in this face. Oh, you have mirrored sunglasses. Precisely. You douche. Douche. Co-douche. <laughs> It's hard when you're a stand-up to look at that because, you know, I don't know if that'll work with a crowd, man. And you can't always use what'll work with a crowd for what'll work on a camera. Well, the camera and the live audience. Right. They have different rules to get to the same thing. I've heard that time and time again in, in one exception, and that was George C. Scott in Dr. Strangelove when Kubrick tried to get him to go more and more cartoony, and he just wouldn't do it. And he goes, just give it to me one time, and then ended up apparently using every single one of those crazy takes because he's doing I can have a look at the big bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when those babies, they come flying in so low. They, <laughs> and it is amazing, and I'm, I'm wondering how much of that is just that caliber of actor, that caliber of director – and the trust, it's like the opposite of what you're saying. But in that case, it really works. Sometimes it's the cross irony of it's someone known for their nuance. Yeah, it has to be, yeah. Leslie Nielsen. Right. He was the, an airplane. He says, the plane is crashing and bouncing along the runway. And they replay the thing. I just want to tell you all, good luck. It, 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 no one should be acting like that under those circumstances, you know? And he hasn't changed from when he was doing serious drama. It's the same delivery in yeah. a different context. Yeah, and then eventually he had to because you can't do that every time over and over either. <laughs> you have to at some point top your other thing, and it will lead you to bigger things. Like you ever seen later seasons of 60s shows that started out serious and then it turned into absolute flat-out cartoons by the end because they were – that was the same time someone thought doing a Casino Royale with Peter Sellers – uh, James Bonds and uh, David Niven, James yeah. Bonds, and just go apeshit acid trip crazy with it. Well, don't get me started on that. That's why I brought it oh, up because you're a Bond guy. Well, you have the Darby O'Gill connection with the Darby blue O'Gill. screen yes, and Connery. Right. Yes, Sean Comedy. <laughs> yeah. You've got a Connery-esque beard right now. Though. Well, I'm roughly his size. Yeah. And I've walked past him a couple of times. I mean, you know. You could be a double. I mean, you, I'm uh, looking at you now. Well, uh, if I crank my... I grow up like this, and uh, I don't do films anymore, not after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I've never seen anybody do the actual face, those, those like, lips that he has. The... It's one side cranks up like this, and he has a nasal sound, and it's not the way he used to sound. He used to, he used to work very hard to sound British. That's when he was being James Bond. This transcends the usual impression of Connery that you get from people. Oh, thanks, yeah. It really does. I'm the commander of a Russian submarine 
as you can tell from my accent. Can I give you one addition? His lower lip always seems to be just waxed with saliva. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 I do. It's a visual. All right. So you meet with Martin Brest. Yeah. And how did that go? Did you improvise in the We audition? talked about the word prophylactic. Why? I don't know why. You don't know why? No. Did you come in with one just no. out? Yeah, we were just talking about it means protection and it's protective thing, you know. As it like metaphorically for your character? Uh, protecting the facility perhaps, yeah. If anything in this episode, I want to get to the bottom of why you had to talk about prophylactic. I can't for say for sure. I was pretty intimidated by the whole situation, though excited, not negatively intimidated, but I was certainly having a good time and wanted it to go great. And it's a movie break and I wanted it to happen. So I was just there for the experience of it. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, was just, what do you think of the word prophylactic? And he said, oh, <laughs> I've done my best to use them, you know, in the, the days of my life. I was wondering where was this was headed and if it was a comedy bit or whatever. And they just said it means protection, and, you know, a safety zone uh, and, and uh, pre-thought, you know. And I said, well, yeah. And that would you say that came up right out of the gate or a little bit into the audition? So I said, Eddie said, no, first it's Eddie uh, says you're really funny and all that. Great. You know, and it couldn't, it wasn't an era where you could hand someone a cassette yet. Yeah. I, there's no way to prove I'm funny without him coming down. Mm -hmm. It's either Eddie says so or he has to see it. There's no tapes yet. You can't really, it's just not easy to just flip a cassette into someone's hand and prove it. Yeah. So you throw the word prophylactic at him. I, he threw it at me, and I wore it. Figured it. Well, across the room. It was like a ring toss. <laughs> it's a big prophylactic. Yeah, it was a, and it was a range and accuracy. He got both. <laughs> Maybe you're the only one that accepted that challenge, and that's what got you the role. It's, it's happened before. <laughs> <laughs> so today's conception of Eddie Murphy is that he's really reclusive and shy and a little eccentric, but... Back then, he's, what, 24 at this time? You know him. There's probably an ease and familiarity. What would you say is – is it just the, the public perception of him off or they just don't know him? Or what's your experience with Eddie? I'm on a first-name basis. Well, we always had – we were always good friends. You know, we did martial arts together. We would do like Wing Chun Kung Fu. He did, he did that. We play, you yeah. know. Yeah. So when we'd see each other, he'll like and still throw a punch at me that I'll either block or <laughs> receive because I didn't, you know. Would that happen today if you saw him? I wonder. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I hope he pops me one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and I want to talk to you about Willow and some of the uh, – I have – There's one credit you have on here that I have a lot of questions about. I'll leave it as a little mystery tease. Okay, Willow, how did you get this role? And then Ron Howard already had used me in Gung Ho. Which I just watched coincidentally two weeks ago. How ahead of time time was he to call what was going on in the auto industry then? America didn't want to face it back in 86, but I'm sorry. That's what was happening. This is a Michael Keaton movie from the 80s where he plays the kind of like one of the foremen of a struggling Detroit auto plant. So he goes to Japan after this Japanese company buys – basically buys the motor works, right? And so you're one of the factory workers here. In, in Detroit, Googie. Right? Googie. Googie with my crew cut. I remember that movie from 
my childhood. I love that film. It was fun to go to. We shot five weeks in Buenos Aires, Argentina for the inside of the car factory because they couldn't find in that year a car factory in America willing to shut down. I guess they couldn't afford to. They couldn't time. afford to. They had right. to just keep making cars, and they couldn't leave a production crew making their cars. Argentina, having just lost a massive war, uh, could afford to have their uh, plant, uh, the Fiat plant in Savelle, uh, the Savelle auto plant, uh, could afford it because their economy so wrecked up, production would be good for them. So they let us weld these a brand of Fiat you don't get in America, so you wouldn't recognize it, and you put the Asan label on the front and no one's going to be the wiser, you know? So as a producer, you'd have to have figured something like that out to make this work. What was it like being down there for five weeks? It was wild. Everyone parties late. You buy a $10 bottle of perfect red wine and a steak the size of a manhole cover. You're out for 20 bucks. (laughs) And, and then you're supposed to dance it off the rest of the night. Did you? I know you got to shoot the next day. So you're just walking around with this half a steak in your ass and you know, you and you're because there's no blood in your brain. It's all in your gut, battling it out with last night's meal. You went right home to sleep. Oh, I gotta go. I'm supposed to go. You're supposed to tango it off. So the thing I've always wondered about that film. There's such a cultural difference in the film between the American and the Japanese workers. Was it like that at all on set? Did you guys intermingle a lot, or was there also? Oh a yeah, Sab Shimono, and uh, yeah, we were hanging out all the time. Yeah. Getty Watanabe yeah. and I were still pals. He's brilliant. In that yeah, movie. Getty's brilliant in everything. Yeah, yeah. So it was Saab, you know, everybody. So Ron Howard remembered you from that. Bobby do. And he brought you in straight into Willow. Yeah. And, then- and uh, uh, the reason we speak French is because we were designed by the graphic artist Mobius. Okay. So I was going to ask you about that accent, what the inspiration was, because Mobius is a brilliant artist. And just because he's French was just just a nod? To yeah. him? Yeah, it was an in-joke poking his ribs. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Did he ever respond? Yeah. yeah. How so? Not, not so positive. Really? I mean, I, I think he, he played it cool, but he maybe didn't like it so much because it was kind of a dig because they said he was being a little difficult, which, you know, I can understand. But yeah. it was – so we thought we'd have a little fun with him. And it's the same kind of fun they were having when you call the the uh, the two-headed monster an Ebersisk. Based off of Siskel and Eber, Siskel right? Siskel and Eber, because they know that it was going to get killed in review. So they, they like, like Spartacus, like threw the spear at the king first, you know, in the yeah, arena. One head blows up before the other. Would you say that was Ebert or Siskel? Oh, gosh. The sword goes through the, um, um, oh, geez, which one? I don't know. I'm going to have to see which well, one gets it first again. Which one would you have it be? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just know I had fun going to ILM when it was still in San Rafael. Yeah. And they would take us on a tour and you could see when everything was still like a model, they would build models for things that isn't all CGI yet. They were just inventing CGI. Because you said the morphing, this is the first film. That's like one of the earliest things where you're taking one real picture and blending it into another real picture. Right. And how it makes all the artificial ones to smear them together in between. That was tons of work. I was hanging out with Joe Johnston when he was working on perfecting fur. No, looks fake, too shiny, too weird, too flat. Again, over and over and over to get fur right. What was the process like? It must have been very intricate for you guys on blue screen to to match the motion of the live action. Was that all just motion control computer camera? How was that done? Partly. You watch a playback of the real scene that was shot live. 
and then they'll point with a little pointer thing. Here's where you're going to be walking through it. And so then they take you to the set and they take a kind of, remember, winky dink. Winky dink will always have a lot of fun again. There's a sheet of plastic you put over your TV and kids would draw on the TV. Winky dink goes, point this over here. Remember that? Winky dink. And they would draw over the TV set. They would put a winky dink over the monitor and draw where we're going to walk on a kind of football A to B to C cha-cha map, you know? And so you see where you're going to go. And there's X's of tape on the floor. And because we're barefoot, you kind of feel for the X of tape because you can't look down or it looks like you're doing a Spencer Tracy, you know? (laughs) You know what his deal was. He was looking down at where his mark was. And so you have to look up while feel, feel, feel. There it is. Scooch over, <laughs> you know, until you through rehearsals you land on it because otherwise you just walk through a tree because yeah, it's not there in the real shit. There be big blocks of blue foam that kind of for the bigger things, you know, don't go here. That thing's in the way. Yeah. And then uh, the, the, that light fixture is Val's face. You watch the playback, playback the video of him angry and saying a thing. No, I don't want you to come with me. Got your attitude. Got your mood. Look up at the lamp. Go. That's his face. Go to the lamp. Remember it. Remember. Okay. Cut. You want to see the playback again? Yeah, remember that? He's kind of, he's just making fun of you. You're mad about that. You know, so I go back again. It was fun working. Kevin Pollack would kill me in between takes. He knew intentionally to try and mess with me. He would go right before a take. He'd go, take me home and make me stink. And I go, <laughs> prick. <laughs> we did a lot of outtakes. In fact, George and Ron let us do one of the first EPKs that were a, a spoof EPK. When you say EPK, what do you mean? Electronic press kit. It's a B-reel. Okay. The B-reel's behind the scenes, what's happening on the set. And so a fake doc, a real doc. Yeah. And we did a fake one where it was the blue screen and we're sitting on two folding chairs and saying, George has been really cheap on this production. And uh, and behind us, and I, they bought a Barbie dream house and I assembled it and put it Behind, and so it looks like he, instead of putting us in a hotel, <laughs> he stuck us in a Barbie dream house. And people are dropping like Frito bags on, hey, we're Which, working you, here, you know. Are you wearing your film yeah, wardrobe? Yeah, and so Which, we just, we did it in between takes, so we could just go on the same, can we do it against this blue here? Remember, it's going to be the house behind you, and a bag, uh, you know, make a face yeah. every now and then, and we'll we'll fix that, you know. And so that, and that's, if and it's on the cassette, and I don't know if it's on the DVD, but I hope it is. Oh, well, it's got to be on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> yeah, if maybe. I can find it, it'll be on this episode page. Look it up. Oh, that'll be swell. When you guys were shooting those, did you did they have like a video playback where they could know if they matched it that day? Mm-hmm. And oh, so- that's everything has to be. And you know who perfected that, of course. No, I don't. Jerry Lewis invented video playback. Really? Yeah, of course. For well, how would I know that? He wanted to see himself immediately. <laughs> Oh, it's all ego-based? Well, I don't know, but it worked out really wonderfully for everybody else. I mean, it really helped a lot of things. So you could you don't have to wait a day to catch a mistake. Jerry Lewis's ego is responsible for a great innovation in the film industry. Uh, sometimes negative things become positive things by accident or whatever. But that one's a pretty positive one. Yeah. Thank you, Jerry, for that, uh, for that innovation. Do you so, know which film it was on, The Day the Clown Cried? Maybe. It was so, oh, man. <laughs> I'm waiting for the musical. Uh, speaking of your wardrobe, did you have any say in that? Yes, I did. Okay, Actually, so Kevin and I had a lot of say in it. Take us through that. I mean, you The look- rat head with the ears. Yeah. It was a hat. Kevin came up with a, he's bald under there. So they gave him a pate at the end. Ah, uh-huh. little reveal, funny gag, great gag. And I, ha, 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 like I didn't know, you know. And uh, 
I got to get a yuppie sweater, which at the time a yuppie look was you take the arms and you fold yeah. them on the sweater. Put it on show. He's like, give me a rat skin that I fold the arms <laughs> up because I'm the boss and I got a yuppie thing. You're always a middle manager boss or something. That's kind. right. Yeah. A douchey boss, right. <laughs> Did you do any douche mirror work for this? <laughs> it was the, the douche effects. <laughs> it was the douche playback. Douche Wait, effects. Jerry Lewis is the original douche mirror workshop man. <laughs> We're tracing this back. Oh my God, we're unlocking this industry. <laughs> How is it doing comedy with somebody that's not there? I know you're there with Kevin Pollack, but you're working with Val Kilmer, who's just on playback. Right. Is there anything lost in that translation? You just have to buy, buy into it, make believe. What's the process for you? Yeah, you have to remember and put it there. You can't, if, you, if you can't put a thing there that isn't there as an actor, you're stuck. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have to be in a real-life documentary setting at all times for the rest of your life, or there's no authenticity for you. But that's why it's called acting. You're acting like it's happening. You're not really the psycho killer wearing a mask and killing kids in the woods. You're some lucky guy that got dental and medical for a year, you know? (laughs) So what? They don't know your name. Get your fucking dental. Shut up. Yeah, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, you're tricking yourself while you know you're being tricked. Giving yourself permission to trick yourself. Was Dennis Murin on set with you guys there? Mm, sometimes, yes. That I'm so fascinated by that guy, the mad and scientist. Doug Trumbull. Yeah. Yes, I got to meet all my. Are you an FX? Yeah. Nerd. Yeah, a little bit. Well, what was Dennis Murin like? I'm fascinated by that guy. Nice. Yeah. Quiet. Soft spoken. Yeah. He's a genius. He's working in his basement probably yeah. all the time. Yeah. There's no uh, uh, Doug Trumbull was uh, liked when someone knew the work and would trade notes. He liked talking shop, yeah. you know, and he thought me and Kev were funny. And so they open up a little more and talk to you more when you got to laugh at yeah. them, you know? And so there was a great opportunity for me to talk shop about effects. It would be my life's uh, dream to see Dennis Murin complete an effect shot and then just scream, it's alive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some of your other roles here, because like I said, there's one I specifically want to get to, but first of all, you were on Lost. Mm-hmm. And this is a question I ask anybody on this podcast that's been on Lost. What the fuck was happening on that show? And did they give you any insight on where it was headed or anything like that? It's not supposed to be a destination. It's a journey. It's not supposed to be a thing you go to the end of and find a thing. They keep giving you things that look like the end of something and just start something new. That's the whole point of it is it never stops. This is the first version of that explanation I've heard. That's interesting. Usually I get, nah, I didn't hear shit. They didn't know what they are talking about. It's supposed to show that it just keeps going because just like life, it just keeps going. It's a take on life that shows that it's a surreal, blindsiding mystery with clannish fears and – uh, bids for power and people just trying to survive in between. And that kind of looks like every single day on the news, you know, <laughs> it doesn't mean it's the only perspective in life. Yeah. And certainly someone has to bring an optimism to it, but just not on that one. Mm-hmm. What I was did. your experience like on the rocketeer? Joe Johnston called and said, Hey, you want to come down and be in the ballroom scene and see this cool, fly around thing because we're going to do some of it live. And I go, oh, hell yeah, I do. And I get there, he goes, hey, you want to be in the movie? I go, yeah, I want to be in the movie. Puts me in a tux. Hey, I'm going to give you the title of the movie to say. 
And I go, it's the Rocketeer. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy that says the title of the movie. There's two people who say it. And I'm the other one. There's the guy in the newspaper. He's a Rocketeer. And then there's, why, it's the Rocketeer on the ballroom floor. I mean, that's basically, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. That's right. Yeah. That was my buddy being a buddy. Airplane 2, the sequel. Yeah. I was originally supposed to be in the scene with William Shatner. But then I think there was some confusion. <laughs> From Shatner? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know why, but it wound up, then I they had to... No one told me why, but I, they put me in the other scene in the courtroom. Uh. But I was originally supposed to be on the moon base going whoosh, whoosh, with the door. <laughs> I, I would have liked to have seen that. I would have liked to have done it because I read for that part. Yeah. And they put me instead in the courtroom, swearing the jive guy in with the Bible. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, shall be God. Ain't no big thing. And I give him five with the Bible. <laughs> okay, this is the one I want to get to. There was this film called Million Dollar Mystery. Yeah. And I remember this. Yeah. So it's about this bank robbery. That's the other movie I recommended Kevin for. Okay. But there's there's a bank robbery gone wrong, and there are $4 million, each buried separately in million-dollar chunks. And they get to three of the million-dollar chunks in the movie, but the fourth one never is found. And so there was this promotional tie-in that it was Dino De Laurentiis, right, that did this? Yeah. With glad sandwich bags. Yeah. If you follow the clues in the movie, you can find the extra million dollars. And I remember this as a kid. Yeah. And apparently the movie didn't go over didn't, so well. It was so good. <laughs> and it was promised to us to be. And if you, know your, if you know your geekery, you know the great connections with this film. I don't think I do. Sir. Madam. Do I need to address you directly at a Richard Fleischer, director of Fantastic Voyage and oh. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, took the helm of this comedy that was supposed to be the next Mad, 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 Mad World? I guess you do. That was Richard Fleischer. Okay. Max Fleischer's boy. Okay, yeah. Popeye's oh, yeah. creator's okay, boy. Okay, right, right. Okay. Who went on to direct some of our favorite other films, uh -huh. uh, just not in comedy. <laughs> and so technically all the stunts, the driving, very well done but in the comedy went a little skew do you remember what happened with the um contest it fell apart you know we had nothing to do with that right we just no. showed up and try to be funny on no, camera i'm blaming you personally damn it man it uh, started out so good here and then just went south on that part i just fascinated by this ticket buyers were even given game cards shaped yeah, like right. american currency with a big photo <laughs> yeah. of dino de Laurentiis where the president should be Talk about ego. Oh, In the end, buddy. it was a big disaster My for the studio. My monkey make you cry. <laughs> the film was one of the major flops of the 1980s, barely, barely grossing a million dollars at the box office, which the studio wound up working over to the contest winner. The winner of the contest ended up being 14-year-old Alicia Lene Jones of Bakersfield, California, who successfully guessed that the loot was hidden in the nose of the Statue of Liberty. Apparently, thousands of contestants had arrived at the same answer, and her entry was chosen, chosen in a random drawing. That's some cinema history there. That I, I, I honestly, It all fell apart. It all, the point of it fell apart. The movie fell apart. Yeah, what was the process like? De Laurentiis fell apart. The he, company went down after that. He, he's, did you work with him hand-in-hand hand at all? He seems like quite a character. Not hand-in-hand. Hand. He just nodded to me once and walked off the set. That wasn't – I was cast and that was it. So, you know, and my manager, Marilyn Black, helped me get the part. What was the atmosphere like on the set? At times fun, at times contentious. You could tell that there, it was problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, overshooting. We lost one of the great stuntmen of all time. Dar Robinson. Dar Robinson. Oh, God, yeah. Died. 
He died during that? Yeah, there was no medevac copter way out there in the Arizona desert. And he was, he just went past the camera for a take on dirt bikes. The dirt bike people all going after their part of it. Wait, he died on this film? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Dar Robinson, which you folks might remember, Bird on a Wire, he's hanging on the railing of this uh, hotel oh, 40 stories up. Sharky's machine. Sharky's machine. Or, no, or no. Stick. We're not, no, Bird on a Wire. Oh, hold on. It's a Burt Reynolds movie, isn't it? Oh, he, that's him too. He invented the descender wire yeah. for stuntmen. And he does this incredible shot where he's hanging on the railing. And he's And he reaches for his gun and says, screw it, let's go. And ah, right. fires upward while falling backwards from that height. And everyone in the audience says, you're my stunt hero, you brass balls motherfucker. That's right. I am a big fan of uh, great stunts. And so that took my breath away. And it was Dar Robinson, and he died because he was dirt biking past the camera on uh, Million Dollar Mystery. He went off the bike, landed on a sagebrush stump, uh, broke his liver open. And because he's in the van driving back these dirt roads because of no copter, he didn't get to help in time before he bled out. Uh, and there wasn't enough help in the van to stop it because of the severity of the injury. Uh. At 220 feet, the stunt from Atlanta's Hyatt Regency Hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 1981 Burt Reynolds film Sharky's Machine still holds up as the highest freefall stunt ever performed from a building for a commercially released film. However, despite it being a record-setting fall, only the beginning of the stunt as he goes through the window is used in the film. A dummy was used for the outside wide shot. However, Robinson performed a similar falling stunt for his largest role as an actor in the 85 Burt Reynolds film Stick. But this Stick, time, I'm sorry. All right, dude. But the end of the You win. St- oh, I don't, I don't. Burt, I thought it was Burt Reynolds. Tall building from fire. The pistol at the same time. Yes, He's, he was amazing. There's a um, great. Oh, Dar. Is it a documentary called The Ultimate Stuntman or something about Dar Robinson? It's really worth seeing. Yeah. I love stunt work too. I wanted to be a stuntman when I was a kid. Good, yeah. that's good. good. <laughs> Is it? I don't I've know. done some stunts in films. Really? Yeah. Have you been squibbed? Yes. Did you ever see Blind Fury? With the Rutger Hauer? Yeah. When I was a kid, yeah. I'm one of the two hitmen. Me and Nick Cassavetes oh, are wow. the two cowboy hitmen. And then there's uh, Tex Cobb comes in because we're screwing Randall up Tex so bad. Cobb. We didn't, oh. We're so bad at it, they have to send Tex. And then the samurai guy that he cuts in half at the end. But uh, because it's based on the uh, Zatoichi, uh, Blind Samurai. So we, ha- we go uh, and stage Nick and I. Casavetti's got to help come up with our own death a little bit where we accidentally shoot each other and then he shoots me in the head in the hallway and it you feel it when a squib goes off. Where's your squib on your head? Right in the middle of my cowboy hat, forehead of my cowboy hat. And there's a little metal plate. Wire goes over your head, down your shirt, out your pants leg. This is like porn to me. Yeah. And uh, – and your fear is I won't take the bullet hit, hit correctly and they got to make a new fucking hat for me <laughs> and do it again while everyone's looking at me. You can't afford that. You got to do it right. But you're supposed to because, you know, in the Japanese films, they and they all his enemies freeze yeah. and they all fall at once. Yeah. That's part of the stylized uh, uh, style. So. Uh, we had to have a little bit of a pause where I shoot him, uh, he shoots me, pie on the head, uh, flop, flop. We fall dead on each other. So the first hit, it felt like someone bounced a hardball off of my forehead. Like that, and I went, huh? Oh, uh, and I die. Cut. New hat. They had to make a new hat. They went to the spare hat and shot me in the head, and then I flopped. I knew I expected the punch in my forehead then, but it punches you. Really? It had to blow out a scored hat. Was it uh, really loud or did you get a little earplugs? Bam! Ta! 
Yeah. And, uh, and I've had one done on the show called Julie Brown's The Edge. Uh-huh. Where I got rat da 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 Oh, machine you got a machine gun? gun? Yeah, what yeah. Was that and then like? I got the whoo cable that pulls you into the oh, cardboard you got the boxes. Whole deal, man. That's how I, I want to fly go back. Out. That's how I want to go. Whoo. <laughs> it was loads of fun. And Rucker Howard really headbutts me when he comes out of the van on the on the overpass there. His giant bovine Rutger Howard skull went bonk stars and planets into my head. I go back. What's more painful, a Rutger Howard head bump or a squib on your head? Rutger Hauer head bump is right. more. There you have it. And I was there too exclusive. Well, Rick, what are you up to now? Tell us what you're working on. I'm working on a, a, a Showtime series called I'm Dying Up Here. And I'm recurring on that. And I, uh, it's the comedy scene in 1973. And uh, it's a brilliant, brilliantly written show. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't say a lot about it yet, but really, really look for it. It's so good. Well, we should mention, too, that the reason you're here is Jason Clam, who yeah, has Jason a great Clam. podcast called Comedy on Vinyl, yeah. who's sitting in today to listen. And I'm assuming, Rick, you've been on his show. Did you guys talk about Jonathan Winters? Oh, boy, did we ever. Yeah. You bet. Well, that's worth checking it out. I've been on that show, too. We talked about a Monty Python album that I was <laughs> basically raised on, self-raised. Uh, Jason, thank you for bringing Rick in today. You can say something oh. if you want. <clears throat> yes, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. Let's uh, get to our douche mirror exercises. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. And douche and douche and douche and breathe and shoot Just like Jason Clam, you too can sit in on an interview if only you connect me to a guest that comes on the show. You can still connect me even if you don't come in. Maybe you live in another city. I wouldn't expect you to travel. But I do appreciate it when you guys set me up with these guests because it seems to be happening more and more. The way to do it is to email me at Iwasthere2pod at gmail.com. That's about the only way. I get some people trying Twitter and sometimes name-checking the people in there. And then I feel bad if I don't have uh, a way to use them. Or maybe I haven't even seen the movie. And then So no need to put them in. You can also find me at Matt Gorley on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd, where I post lists about upcoming interviews. You can see the films that I'm watching for this show and clues to what the uh, theme tag stings are at the beginning of each episode of this podcast. You can also follow this show on Twitter at I Was There Too. Okay. You know, we're nearing in on 50 episodes of this podcast, and uh, on the ramp up to and the arrival of the 50th episode, we're working on some things. And uh, they're not set in stone yet, but I'm kind of trying to put a little public record down here so it'll force me to do them. But more on that later. Have a good two weeks, everybody. I do love you. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.